0: forever. Dog.
1: I would just take stuff from my gift closet and then I talk about my day and then uh, during the course of the thing I would just give stuff away because I thought if I'm not funny you're getting stuff for free.
0: Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or that one episode of Heroes where I played Ali Larder's lawyer. Our guest this episode is Amy Hill. Now, you know Amy from Crazy Ex Girlfriend, from 51st Dates, from All American Girl, but you might not know about her rich history doing a lot of one person shows, the time she spent in Japan, and you. Almost definitely don't know about the really unusual play she talked her high school into doing. This this is one for the theater geeks. She she talked her high school into doing a play that is just not often done on on the high school level. It's it's really a treat. Please welcome Amy Hill. Uh, Amy, uh, Amy Hill, <laughs> Aloha! Thank aloha. you so much for uh, for for doing this. Um, you're working on Magnum PI, correct? And everyone I know who's ever worked in Hawaii says it's just the nicest AD department. Just for whatever reason, the ads are just the most chill.
1: Well, you know that's interesting because most of our ads are from the mainland.
0: <laughs> oh, really? <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, and now I'm not sure how uh, everything is going to go down because we have so many productions happening here. I, I hope we have the same ADs, but the ADs we've had up till now, they're all from the mainland and they're here just for the production, but they're chill. Interesting. Oh, good. The great good, thing good. is the crew, I'd say at least half of the crew is based here. And they bring, you know, some people from the mainland. But now, I don't know, maybe more people will come from the mainland because NCIS Hawaii is starting up. They just did uh, a season of Doogie Kame Aloha, which is based on the Doogie Hauser thing. And, um, and then I Know What You Did Last Summer and a couple of Hallmark movies. I mean, it's just crazy.
0: It's the new Vancouver.
1: It is. And it's... I. I hate to say nicer, because I
0: <laughs> I was raised
1: in uh, in Seattle, so Vancouver is really lovely, but the weather
0: it's the same weather, like yeah. Seattle. <laughs> Yeah. It's overcast yeah, it's a lot. Gray. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you were born in in Deadwood. Correct. Which is arguably the coolest place in the world to be born. Yeah. Um, do you remember anything of, of Deadwood? or Yeah, you I left when
1: I was six. I remember the oh, wow. isolation. Because <laughs> hmm. we lived on a farm and not a working farm, but we had pigs and horses and cows. And that was basically just for us, I think. Um, my dad was a heavy equipment operator in the only working gold mine in the United States in LEED. It's Black Hills Gold. He was helping mine Black Hills Gold. So uh, everybody in our family has a little bit of Black Hills Gold.
0: That's amazing because I, I, you know, the stereotype obviously from from a twenty first century American looking at this, I'm like, oh well, you know, obviously it was no longer a a a mining concern the way it was in the eighteen hundreds, but this just gives the lie to that. Your dad was an actual gold miner.
1: Yeah, I don't know if they still have. They must still. I don't know. It was a working mine. It was just like you know, if you're digging for, I don't know what salt or granite. It's
0: just a thing they do. (laughs) What brought your family to Seattle?
1: Well, my mom's Japanese. So my dad met my mother in the um, post-war period. He was there in the occupation forces and met my mom, fell in love, brought her back to Deadwood, where she was really a fish out of water. I mean, it was difficult. So after a few years, I guess six years of living there... (laughs) because I was born there, they decided that Seattle would be a good place because my dad is Finnish American and he needed his Scandinavian people to hang out with and my mom needed Japanese people to hang out with so they felt like that Seattle was a good place to have a happy medium. So we went there.
0: And that's, that's where you caught the, the acting bug, I'm to understand. is that I
1: know, I caught the acting bug in Deadwood. Because there were no people. So (laughs) I had to entertain myself. I watched a lot of television, which was maybe just black and white, tiny. But we still had reception, I guess. And um, so I would reenact things as a child. I just, you know, do performing, reenact scenes, movies, everything all by myself sitting in the living room. And my mother thought I was maybe... uh, like psychiatrically uh, crazy, I mean, she was worried about me because I was in the other room going, "Oh yes, I think that's a good idea." Oh no, that would not be, you know.
0: Do you remember what shows you were watching that were 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 that you were reproducing?
1: I loved Shirley Temple. I loved dancing. So you know Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, and just uh, any of the anything. I mean, there I hadn't pigs and cows to play with and no people. So <laughs> that was my safe, happy place.
0: Well, let me reframe the question then. So it's not a question of you had the bug apparently from the moment you could talk. Exactly. Was there a moment, was there a moment where you're like, Oh, this could actually be a job.
1: Probably when I moved to Tokyo, when I was 18, right after high school, the moment I thought this was something that I could do in public was in high school. I thought this was something for other people because I didn't see anybody that looked like me. And I had a teacher. I had the nerve to take a drama class and then the teacher was like, you're good, you should do this. And I was like, wow. But I I didn't know I could make a living doing something like that. So I just enjoyed it and really was passionate and did every play in high school. What plays? Like what? You know, I brought to my theater uh, Marat Saad. In high school? <laughs> In high school. And my teacher was like, wow. And I played the narrator.
0: <laughs> okay. So hang on. If, if you're, if you're at home, Marat Saad is a, a, a piece of uh, 60s agitprop that is, um, it's got an epic, epic title that is shortened to Marat Saad conversationally. And it, it's, it's, Uh, It's the Marquis de Sade writing a play about the assassination of Jean-Paul Marat during the French Revolution. Yeah. And it takes place in in an insane asylum. It was fabulous. And and it's in rhymed couplets, am I right? Exactly. I was great. I have no (laughs) doubt. In my
1: mind. (laughs) And I can't believe the drama teacher was like, okay, let's do it. (laughs) And we, I mean, the whole cast was high school kids. It was just amazing.
0: That's okay. So, all right. So that's that's a hell of an answer.
1: But we also did Arsenic and Old Lace and, uh, you know, Thornton Wilder stuff and you know, all those things. The only thing I didn't do was uh, musical theater. But I was very, I was passionate. I was a member of the International Thespian Society. Oh, my goodness. card holding. <laughs> so, and I did in the summer, I did like, you know, community theater. I was... Just, I loved it. And then, but the other thing I wanted to do was leave Seattle. Mm. So right after high school, I went to Tokyo to university. And because of my theater background, I fell into doing a lot of uh, entertainment kind of like spokesmodel kind of things where I would just, you know, show people American products and talk about them or Then I ended up having a a radio show called Amy's Japan, where I got to travel all over the country and just talk about my experiences. It was a good life.
0: It sounds amazing. Yeah, I I knew you had worked in uh, in Japan. I knew you had not just lived there, but you'd actually worked there. Were you, did you... Was, was your household bilingual? Were you? Were no. You, did you go over there? But no. I loved,
1: I wanted to leave Seattle so bad. So I studied Spanish, French, and Japanese because my high school had Japanese. Because why not? Right. And um, I wanted to go to France, but my mom said I could go to Japan. She'd support that. My dad said I could go to Finland, which was so obscure. So um, I got into a university in Tokyo and I
0: left. What did, you, what did you major in in university in Tokyo?
1: Well, I didn't know that I couldn't major in drama. <laughs> so I did uh, uh, art and art history. That was my other That's love. interesting.
0: We have, a, we have a lot of people who we're, we're talking to who, have a, who are actors who have background in the visual arts. Do you think it changes the way you approach acting to have like a, an, a, a keener aesthetic sense maybe or –
1: I think as you go along, you realize all the arts are really intertwined, you know. So um, that was a nice way to be able to express myself creatively, although I didn't know that you couldn't make a living doing that either that easily. (laughs) It was like my fallback. But um, I did get a degree in fine arts and I did get a degree in uh, Japanese. And then I Started acting. So, and I never use Japanese and I never use fine arts except for just doing things personally.
0: How long were you? How long did you live in Japan?
1: About seven, seven years.
0: So, how was, how, how did, because I actually, I, I cut my teeth doing college radio. That was how I got over a, a, I had a huge fear of public speaking. Radio was amazing for me. Did oh, you have a really amazing. good time doing, uh, doing radio?
1: Yeah. I enjoyed it so much. And it was the, in the beginning, I had a producer who was basically, where do you want to go? And I'd say, oh, I'd like to go to Hokkaido and watch the salmon run. <laughs> you know, and you go, OK. And then they'd arrange everything like, you know, they were my travel people. And so we'd go with this lovely group and we'd eat really well and interview people and they'd take video. It was just so much fun. And then we changed producers, and then that producer was interested in where good golf courses were. So then, basically, I was going where he wanted to go, and they'd try to figure out something to do there, and it wasn't as much fun.
0: So <laughs> if you're building your entire show about where the best golfing is, ah, uh, yeah. Down,
1: so I that wasn't, imagine. yeah, it was all about him. it. Was not good, but you know,
0: w- was there a simultaneous sort of development in theater and development in stand-up? Or was, how did you get involved doing, doing stand-up?
1: Well, uh, here's the thing. I never really did stand-up. I did sketch comedy and improvisational comedy in San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco in 79 and uh, started studying at ACT simultaneous to working at the Asian American theater company, which had just started. And they were sort of interconnected. ACT sort of, um, mentored the Asian American theater company. And uh, so I was able to take classes at ACT free, but they didn't really want me to do both. They were willing to have me in the school, but they wanted me to focus only on that. And I discovered in- improv and sketch comedy at the same time. And I was like, oh that's fun too. You know, my passion was giving voice to the Asian American experience. I wanted to learn classical Technique, but I also loved improv. So I quit ACT <laughs> because they mentored us, so I could take master classes with them still, which was great. But we didn't get to use anything really in the master classes because we were doing only new things at <laughs> the Asian Rare Computer Company. So eight years of only new plays was starting to get kind of old, but I was still taking classes and improv was always great.
0: Were you you doing Bay Area theater sports or what were you No,
1: you know what? Bay Area theater sports came in and they really tried to uh, pull us in, but most of the improvisers in the Bay Area thought that it was a cheat because it was too, you know, Structured. uh, structured. So you couldn't really fail. But I think Bay Area Theater Sports was a great thing because most of the improv I did was based on um, topical, like uh, things that were in the newspaper. It was more agitprop like. So, and the sketch comedy was all. It was an Asian American sketch comedy group that did, uh, you know, our stories, our characters, our stuff, which was really great.
0: What were you guys called?
1: Not my fault. I didn't pick the name, but it was like, you know, Asian Americans always think everything's their fault or we're blamed for everything. Okay. You know what I mean? So it was all about, which we'd like to use right now. Not my fault. The pandemic is not my fault.
0: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. This was not a, this was not a cultural uh, stereotype I was aware of. So uh, I learned something out of <laughs> yeah, doing exactly. this all the time. Um, that's, uh, that is incredible. Um, there's a, a great comedy scene in in the Bay Area always has been. And there's the work you were doing. There is ample footage of you doing stand-up. I know. You have done stand-up. I know you did a lot of like one person shows and that kind of blurs the lines.
1: I did one person shows that had some funny stuff in it, but it was also touching, made people cry. So you start out laughing and you end up crying. Not that I tried to do that, but it gave me a safe place. To not have to go joke, 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 joke. Now, because people always thought I did stand-up, I would always do like alt comedy where I would go and just talk about my day or whatever I wanted to do like for 20 minutes, which is something you'll, you'll learn that I can do a lot of talking. But it's not always funny. <laughs> but I started a kind of a... Uh, a bit where I, cause I'm always, I'm a kind of a hoarder. I'm neat, but I have a lot of stuff when I travel. I, and when I was doing my solo shows, I was always buying things wherever I went and people would give me things that, and especially when you start working in the business, you get a lot of stuff, which I'm always re-gifting to other people. But uh, I had created a thing where I would just take stuff from my gift closet and take it to the gig. And then I talk about my day. And then uh, during the course of the thing, I would just give stuff away. Because I thought if I'm not funny, you're getting stuff for free. So shut up.
0: When, when was this? <laughs> when, when were you doing stuff like this?
1: Um, it started probably in the 90s when people started saying, can you do a set? And I'm like, I don't have a set. I don't know what you're talking about.
0: There was such an interesting uh, shift. You've used the term alt comedy in the 90s because I came out of New York and the 90s had an area where you could do stuff that didn't have to be conventionally set up, punch, set up, punch, set up, punch. And it was a really exciting time to get started because you had this sort of, freedom of experimentation. I remember Michael Ian Black used to like, bring out a sheet of of various knickknacks and just put it on the stage, and then gradually people would start buying things off him, and that was his Oh, I should have done that! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you should have sold the stuff. You could have really, you could have walked out with dinner money. (laughs) Bam! Find us on your podcast app of choice or watch us on YouTube at youtube.com slash office hours live. who are the animals? Because
1: I don't smell them. You're,
0: when you're working on one-person uh, shows, is, is there a part of you that says, this is going to be great. This is going to be uh, a chance for me to create my own opportunities and sort of go around the business and, and sort of punk rock DIY it myself? Or is it a question of, I want to, I want to, represent, I want to represent a community that is underserved? Or is it both? It was neither. Okay, you <laughs> hit it.
1: <laughs> the, the solo show was an opportunity. You know, I've had a lot of things just come to me. And, and I've just said yes. So... In my world in San Francisco, I was doing improv, I was doing uh, Asian American theater, and I had uh, lived in Japan, and that had changed my whole perception of who I was. Because growing up in Seattle, I was half, not quite Japanese, not quite white. So I was never really, I was always othered. So I just wanted to get out and create a new person, which would have been French. (laughs) But that was a... That was foiled by my mother. So I went to Japan and being there, I learned so much about who I am and my relationship with my mother became so deep because now I could speak her language. And I, instead of being the stupid Japanese idiot that I thought she was, who spoke broken English with a big accent, I realized she was poetic and deep and just so like somebody who I could be proud of which was huge. So when I I had this story I wanted to tell, I just didn't know how it was going to come about. I thought it might be a you know, a regular a traditional play or uh, I don't know. It didn't I didn't think it was going to be a solo show. But I got a call. I was working on a film in in Monterey as an interpreter for a Japanese American co-production and I was miserable. Just because as an interpreter, if things aren't going well, you're getting all of the uh, <laughs> bad feelings. They're yelling at them, but they're yelling at them through me. So I'm getting all that, and I'm trying to make it not so bad. And they're yelling at me, and I'm trying to make it not so bad. And it was like you know a month uh, or so of that, even though I was making a lot of money. It was so horrible. And somebody called from L.A. and said that they heard I had a solo show. And I said, yes, <laughs> in desperation. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they said, oh, could you, you know, send it to us? And I went, well, I'm in Monterey. I don't have it with me. And this is before internet stuff. So they said, OK, well, you know, just let us know what it's about. And I said, I knew that it was going to be about my time in Japan. And I wrote it in a month. I got finished my job in Monterey, went back to L.A., wrote it. Like crazy, and I was done. Fortunately, I, you know, I was a non-working actor, so I had a lot of time on my hands. So I was writing. But you know, the background in improv and sketch comedy had given me the and the theater because I was only working with new playwrights and working on making scripts better. I had the ability to understand how to at least entertain people through writing and making it. Uh, succinct. And I let the play just kind of write itself too, in a way. So I didn't know that it was going to become a play about discovering who I am. And it was a huge success. And then people were like, oh, I want to showcase myself too. And I was like, "Why well, didn't do it for that reason. I was only telling this story the best way I could. And I'm glad that people reacted to it positively.
0: Where did you do the show?
1: East West Players in Los Angeles. And then I did it because I worked with all of the theaters, the Asian American theaters on the West Coast. They um, asked me to do it in Seattle. And then I did it in San Francisco. And then the public saw another version of it in Los Angeles. Because each time I did it, I did rewrites and worked on it some more. And then um, George Wolf from the public before he was the artistic director of the public saw my show. And one of the first things he did at the public was a solo festival. And he asked me to come do it there at the public. So I did it. It's amazing. I know. These are things you cannot anticipate. So I went to the public and then, you know, after I just, my solo career took off, which I never intended. So then I was, you know, a solo performer and doing performance art. And I was like, how'd that happen?
0: It's, it's so interesting how often, because um, I, I, I realize now that I framed the question in such a, a, a kind of cynical way. Um, but it really is just about expressing yourself and doing the truest version of yourself. And then other opportunities come from that. Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, from that show, it was a huge hit in Los Angeles. It got a, an amazing review from this very difficult critic, like the uh, anyway, so I was getting calls from uh, networks to come in and have meetings. And I was like, about what? <laughs> and I'd sit in these meetings and they'd say, do you have any other things? And I'm going, no, <laughs> just was writing this show. It had no ulterior motive.
0: I was going to get to this eventually, but since we're on it anyway, let's talk a little bit about East West theater. I've gotten to see a couple, I don't think I've seen you in anything there, but I've gotten to see a few things down there. And it's a wonderful um, uh, Asian American theater located in a, in a converted church down near little Tokyo here in, in LA. Um, Was that your first involvement with them doing your one person show? What kind of stuff have you gotten to do there?
1: No, I, I, when I moved to Los Angeles in. eighty. Seven. They were still in Santa Monica in a little, sh- like a weird theater with a shack in back. It was really 99 seat, just your typical 99 seat theater. And I immediately, because that was when Mako was still the artistic director. And, um, you know, he's like a genius. And I, I felt I needed to have a theater home in Los Angeles because I had Asian American Theater Company in San Francisco and what in Seattle. So uh, I went there and I started doing, I think the first thing I did was a Tennessee Williams play. See, they're different. At East West, they do Tennessee Williams and plays by David Henry Huang. You know, I mean, they don't do, and then the Sondheim musical. (laughs) So they're more uh, focused on the actors and giving them opportunities to do things that they can't do other places. So that was fun.
0: My wife and I saw an incredible Pippin down there. Oh, yeah! Um, uh, with um, that was uh, that was sort of anime themed, right? Um, which initially we we're like, "Oh, that might be kind of a, uh, of a gimmick," but it was amazing, mm-hmm. and it also had this—you know, anime is so much about like broad heroic archetypes, and to put that over Pippin, which is kind of questioning the role of the hero, right. made perfect sense. It yeah. was such a, a, a fun night out.
1: It, uh, it and and since they moved, I mean, at that time, Tim Dang, I think, was the artistic director, and he moved it into an equity house. We were paying actors equity, not a ton of money, but still, you know. I mean, that theater—it's just amazing.
0: So you're taking these meetings with networks, and I'm assuming that this is this is what leads us to All American Girl.
1: No. Because I took those meetings, I I had no ideas because I I wasn't planning. I mean, I didn't, you know, I never think ahead. People are like, how do you do what you do? And I'm like, I don't know. I just say yes to everything. (laughs) So I was doing uh, something in San Francisco, um, hosting a benefit or perform doing something. And I met Margaret and I saw Margaret do her stand up. And I was like, you are girl, girl, you're just. Like you, your voice is so distinct and so amazing. I just fell in love with her. And then we saw each other in uh, LA just a few months later. I was doing the Asian American Journalist Association. <laughs> she was too. You know, we were on the Asian American circuit. But uh, I was doing like a part of my show. She said she had a deal with ABC and she really wanted me to be in it. And I said, well, wow, because, you know. A few months before, I thought, I hope she gets out of San Francisco so people can see her work. (laughs) And now she has a deal. Um, So she really fought hard for me to be in the show. And I wanted to be the grandma because in the script, the grandma had the most interesting part. But, you know, I wasn't old enough to be the grandma. So I went in with a gray wig. (laughs) Anyway, uh, they... They let me do the part, but I was sort of on parole. Probation. Probation. I was not guaranteed the part if it went to series because they- Well, you're,
0: you're about 20 minutes older than Margaret. Exactly. Church. Okay.
1: I mean, I was younger than the mom and the dad. <laughs> but I'd done my mother for years in San Francisco, so I knew I could do that character fully and rich- Lee and, you know, not just with an accent, but just a real human. So I just loved the character. And I actually, you know, followed somebody. I had my own Korean uh, dialogue coach. I had uh, my muse. I had everything. I worked really hard on that. And I thought, because I'm on probation, I can do whatever I want because, you know, they're going to fire me anyway, if whatever. So I'll just do what makes me happy. So I approached it like theater and I did what I wanted to do. And um, it was amazing. My most fun job.
0: It's such a great role. I mean, she just is, we we use the phrase uh, unfiltered uh, quite a bit, but she really, the the grandma is so unfiltered and she just has such a freedom in the way she interacts with people you, you just have this way of sort of setting a tone. I find that a lot of your characters have this certain authority to them where mm-hmm. they just sort of command a room. Um, is that something that just comes naturally? Is that something you're, you work on? Is it, is it, I, I'm kind of in awe of it because I'm always find myself sort of reacting to people in the scenes I'm in and you kind of are the scene.
1: Well, you know, maybe I don't know why, But even in high school, I remember I felt like I got all the leads because I had the loudest voice. (laughs) Uh, You know, my intention is never to, I mean, I don't ever want to take focus away from anybody in a scene, but I do try to be as present. See, on stage, I feel like I'm more in the moment than I am ever in life. On stage, I'm focused, I'm listening. <laughs> Just like a good human being on stage. And then when I leave the stage, it's like I'm like living in the past and the future and you know, not necessarily, you know, uh, grounded. And I, I love the feeling of being on stage. And then the power that I get from the audience. I think that's the other uh, not actor necessarily, but as a solo performer, it was definitely my scene partner. Just having that ability to bring their energy—that's why every night everything changes because the audience. I love theater more than anything. I feel so. That's why All American Girl was great because it was multi-camera and we had an audience. But like on Magnum, we don't have an audience, and I just—what's great is having had the theater experience. I can I can sort of gauge what I'm doing myself. But I do try to be in the moment and everything that I say, I hope is coming out from a real place. So it's hard for me to memorize lines. But if I understand what I'm saying, it's not like I'm memorizing. I'm just talking to somebody about whatever I'm talking about.
0: I always find that um, I always call multicam sitcoms sort of theater with a safety net.
1: Oh, yes. It's the you know
0: because if you if you screw up it's not the end of the world no. they retake it the audience sees a blooper everybody kind of wins exactly
1: and also the writers are right there and if things aren't going great they come in and say okay say this instead and you're like yes
0: <laughs> my favorite. Getting an alt line on a sitcom oh, is the Oh, it is the best feeling in the world. Like, because you don't have time to overthink your. No, no, like, no. Okay, no. okay. Well, it's the quickest, funniest way to this joke. Yeah. got it. Boom. The best. And it it's electric. There's nothing quite like it. No. L. A. Theater gets a bad rap. Yeah. Um, I, I think we're not we're not taken seriously as a theater town because we're not New York and we're not Chicago, but there's a ton of theater in this town. Well, there also and is a lot of good people,
1: amazing actors who've come from New York and Chicago and San Francisco and Seattle, who are looking for paying jobs. So they moved to LA and they still love theater and they want to do theater. So they're doing it for you know, nothing or close to nothing. That's why we've had such amazing actors at at East West Players, because, you know, these are guys that have been on Broadway. They've done the West End, Asian American actors who are doing theater at East West Players. And you're going, you were in Miss Saigon. You were on. Yeah, it's just crazy. So much talent. And I've There's worked so in- so much
0: talent. So
1: much talent. I've worked in LA and uh, New York. I did Twelfth Night at Lincoln Center. Everybody in the cast assumed I was from the East Coast. And when they found out I was from the West Coast, I was like, you know, we do theater there too.
0: Wait, which production? Is that the one that Helen Hunt yes, did? Yes, I was in that production. Yeah, okay. I was that the only actor past. from
1: the West Coast.
0: Oh, I know who else was in that cast. It was bananas. You had a crazy group of people. It was
1: really diverse because I think Nicholas Heitner was the director. So he didn't see color.
0: He's a national theater guy from London.
1: Yeah. British directors are the best. Uh, Kira Sedgwick, Paul Rudd. Of course, I can't remember anybody else's names, but they were all brilliant.
0: (laughs) Who did you play in it?
1: Mariah. I was Kira Sedgwick's housekeeper. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right, right. It's so funny. We've talked about this on this very show before. The very specific craft of multicam acting, and how, like we we were just saying, you and I about how it's it's sort of it it obviously works your theatrical muscles, but you're also framed for television. Mm-hmm. There is an audience, but the audience is a fair distance away. Right, you know, the front row of a of of a sitcom audience is going to be a hundred yards away, mm-hmm. and you have to play to them, but you also have to realize that you're framed, you know, probably chest up mm-hmm. for a lot of it. So you can't go too big. Mm-hmm. Is that something you, you, you think about or you just kind of go with it? Just kind of like stay out of your head and just sort of. I
1: just go with it. I just go. I just play to the audience. And I feel this is my thing is uh, I just think the cameras, you know, the way sitcoms work, there's so many cameras. I feel like during rehearsal, especially camera blocking, they're going to find you. I mean, you have your marks and you hit your marks, but, you know, I'm not playing to the camera. I'm playing to the actors. I'm playing to the audience. I want the audience to-
0: People don't realize that a lot of times the sets on a multicam are not in front of the audience. No. They're off to the side. The audience is watching on a monitor. Yeah. They, they can sort of hear you, but right. you can't always hear them or there's no. a delay in the laugh, right. which is it's really disorienting. Good.
1: So I just play like I'm in a theater.
0: What was it like- <laughs> one of my my favorite of your your credits is is the work you did on crazy ex-girlfriend um, which was wall to wall um uh, just so many theater people it was uh, the best um and 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 such a um such a kind of absurdist but um but so heartfelt at the same time. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Was it nice being around like all these, um, as a very young audience, but a a young uh, cast, but everyone had like tons of musical theater. Oh my
1: goodness. I couldn't believe my luck. I got a call. They offered me this part of the mom, the Filipina mom. And I was in my head. I had been the voice of Philippine Airlines for six years in San Francisco. Yes. They called... (laughs) To see if anybody could do a Filipino accent. I was like, because I had just done a play playing a Filipina mom. So that I said, Oh, I can do that. So I went in, I auditioned and they cast me and they, the, all the executives from Philippine Airlines thought I went to private school in Manila. Yes, that's how I was able to fool them. But I mean, I'd done my homework as an actor. So it was such a joy to be able to create a whole new character that I loved. And, um, had so many people supporting me when we had that first big scene and all the background was all Filipino. They were all talking to me in Tagalog. <laughs> I was like, I know. <laughs> so the assumption is cuz my name's Amy Hill, nobody knows exactly
0: what I am and that's Is it nice. It, is it true that you thought briefly about changing your name? I did. Uh, to,
1: At the Asian American that's, theater that's, company everybody was like, you know, I felt like my name was so st- stuck out. It was Amy, you know, Mark Hayashi, Judy Nihei, whatever. And then it'd be like Amy Hill. So I thought and at the time I was married to a Japanese guy, so I was thinking of changing my name to cuz my dad changed they changed their name from Keltamaki, which is yellow hill, to Hill. So Maki in Finnish is hill. And then I my ex-husband's last name was Udo, so I was like how about if I changed my name to Mackie Udo? <laughs> the rest of the people at the theater was like, it sounds like a food. Amy, it's okay, you're fine. I never changed it.
0: Can you, I, I'm so bad with dialects. I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm sort of the opposite of, of Henry Higgins. Can you take me through the mechanics of, of when you're doing a, a Korean accent and when you're doing a, a Filipino accent? and like the, the phonetics for, I'm going to get super technical here for a moment, if that's, that's okay. Cause I think a lot of actors are going to listen to this. How do you, do you, do you start with the, like with the native language? Do you, is it just like a sort of phonetic practice? How do you approach dialect work?
1: Well, my, my approach is basically, it's usually based on a person. So, uh, cause you know, my mother, had a Japanese accent, but a Japanese accent that was formed by learning English on the go. So when she spoke Japanese or English, she would say like "hospiro" uh, for hospital. But a Japanese learning English in Japan says hosupitaru, because they're based on the actual written word. So my mother would say, but in Japan, it's "magarin." Everybody has their own unique accent. It's hard to say that there is a phonetic way of learning an accent, especially Asian. For me, it's always based on a person. When I was doing The Grandma on All-American Girl, it, was, it started with my mother's accent, but I had a Korean woman that I was using as my muse who, would, uh, who shifted the accent to more Korean because it is slightly different. And then the Filipina accent, I have tons of Filipino people in my life. So I would just find a person. And cause there's also physicalities that go with it. You know, like Filipina moms, they go like this, when they're like pointing at stuff, they don't use their finger. They go, you, you know, you. they their chin points at stuff. So you would like pick up phil- physical things that also then, just like French. You know, like French are always going, <laughs> I don't know, what what the, what are they blowing out? I don't know. <laughs> so you get these physical things that help you go backwards into the character. So it's not just an accent.
0: That's great. Yeah. So it's, it's really about, you know, finding a person and, and, and just.
1: Yeah. And inhabiting that person and the accent is part of it.
0: And then letting the externals kind of follow from there. Who were some actors you you looked at when you were growing up and thought, oh, that I want, I want that.
1: So well, I loved able. I love Lucy because that was all it felt like the closest approximation to my home. Because really. Yeah, because my dad's white and my mom's Japanese. So there was always miscommunications and craziness. And my mom was kind of Lucy. And my dad was the Ricky Ricardo. But the act, the craziness was pretty similar.
0: So you are you, gonna you cite Lucille Ball as someone who who like really oh, really spoke sh- to you? Is that yes?
1: Because you know what, her humor was really crazy, but it was situational comedy. The situations required her to act the way she did. It wasn't like she was just coming out of nowhere, you know. She was always like, "Oh dear, she's stuck in a like she's at that candy factory." moving too fast what do you do she's got to eat it so those I are the things I always cite that right yeah. isn't that the best Yeah. or vitamin I always
0: cite that as like the the best example of of sort of yes and in written comedy right? is that at no point does she go this is simply moving too fast this is untenable right you know she doesn't she doesn't consult the manager she doesn't go to her boss she just tries it's to make it's not it
1: work. intellectualized at all it's just a an honest reaction to the situation you're in So, you know, she's one of them that I just think is genius. Also, you know, Carol Channing, I watched, not Carol Channing. Burnett? Thank you, Carol Burnett. Carol Channing was funny too. But Carol Burnett, her show, I watched that for years. And that was also really situational. These are interesting people in weird situations and how they deal with stuff. And it was really fabulous.
0: It's really interesting to go back and watch the Carol Burnett yeah. show now because it is ostensibly a sketch variety show. But those sketches would be sort of like 12-minute, one-act yeah. plays. They were really long and they were very character-based. Yes. And they were not necessarily zingers. No. It was just like you know, the, the whole Mama's family and Eunice and uh-huh. everybody was
1: – Real it, people. These were like – It felt like you yeah, were, were in, they, in that – you were in there – as a voyeur watching this crazy family deal with stuff or I just, I loved it so much.
0: It had such a, it has such a a root in, in sort of old older school vaudeville stuff. that is really fun to watch. And there's tons of stuff online, tons of great examples of that. Um, And I always encourage like uh, my millennial actor friends to like give that a shot because it's such a great approach if you can ignore the, the constant unprofessionalism of, of Harvey Korman collapsing uh, every five minutes, um, it's, still, uh, it's still a pretty great show to watch. Right. Were there roles that you missed out on, roles that you thought like, oh, this is the one, I've got this in my hands, and that just did not pan out? What was the one that got away?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I looked back at things that I thought I had or wanted really desperately, and then in the end, it was better that I didn't get it. Like David Henry Wong was a playwright that I'd worked with at Asian American theater company for years before he was doing Broadway. And he said to me casually, I wrote this part in M butterfly with you in mind. So I was like, well, I'm going to Broadway. (laughs) I couldn't even get an audition. It was so, uh, you know how you do when, especially when you're young, you think, Oh, where will I live? What should I do? You know, I was like so excited. So, uh, yeah, that was very disappointing. Um, we're everyone, still friends. Talk
0: to <laughs> oh, good, good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Um, everyone I talk to, um, it's actually great because I'm talking to people in sort of the middle of their careers, hundreds of credits, and there's never any bitterness surrounding that question anymore. You don't yeah. hear anyone goes, ah, it kills me that Blank got this part. It's just sort of a funny, like, what, you know, oh, that's one way this might have worked out. It didn't, no big deal. Yeah. Um. But it's everyone's got a pretty zen approach to the whole thing right now, which is nice to, yeah. Nice to hear. Yeah, I mean,
1: also, Wayne Wang, I'd done his second film in San Francisco, Dim Sum, A Little Bit of Heart. Yeah, yeah. And then years later, he was doing Joy Luck Club, and he's, he co- talks to me directly and says, I want you to play blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm too, one of the mothers. And I said, I'm, first of all, I'm not Chinese and I'm not going to learn Chinese. I can't do it. (laughs) I can't, I, you know, and it's on film. So there's this big me and you're going to have to age me up like for real. It's not like theater. It's not like TV where you're fought, you know, it's like, and he goes, no, no, you're perfect for this part. Blah, blah, blah. So I, I flew myself to the audition, and I remember Sai Chin walking in, and I went, she should be <laughs> she should be the mom for the part that I was going up for. And, you know, she was. And I was pissed off at Wayne just because I flew myself down <laughs> to audition for everyone, knowing that I was wrong. I did my best, but at the same time I was like – Wayne, Wayne. And I never heard from him after. I mean, it would have been nice for him to call and say, Oh, sorry, I really screwed up or, you know, whatever.
0: You were absolutely right. I apologize profusely. Yeah.
1: I, you know, so I, I don't know what he was thinking. He probably thought I would be mad, but I wasn't mad that she was cast. I always think, you know, the better person, I mean, life is like that. The Zen of this world is better than, um, you know, worrying over everything.
0: That's so crazy. You mentioned Wayne, Wayne, he's that's, he's um he's Chan is missing, right? Is yeah. That you... And
1: I was in the second one, Chan is missing was huge. And so the second yeah, one, we I, all were like, thinking- oh, I want to be in that one. And then I got it. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't as fun as I was hoped,
0: hope, hoping it would be. <laughs> Last night, I was looking to see, and I did not realize you had a connection with them, but last night, I was looking to see if Chan is Missing is streaming anywhere, and it's not. No. Um, but I just got it into my head, like, I want to see Chan is Missing. Because I remember when that came out, growing up in New York, there were posters, and it was just like this, yeah. this massive indie hit, um, this huge step towards representation that um, that really, really took off. I'm surprised that isn't, hasn't gotten like a really nice Blu-ray release or something. I
1: know. And those were actors from Asian American theater company.
0: Oh, they were oh, yeah. from, from
1: uh-huh. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's
0: so cool. Um, do you actually golf? You play a golf pro on Magnum PI. No,
1: they had a golf pro. Yeah. No, I remember the first day they changed my name from some Japanese name to a Samoan name. And I was like, Oh really? You know, that's a whole nother person. <laughs> That happens all the time in this business where they go, can you not do the accent? Well, that's another that's another human.
0: But oh, my God, that's interesting. Yeah,
1: you have to adjust really fast anyway. And then they said, and you'll be doing this golf thing. And I've said, I don't even know how to hold a club. (laughs) So there was a golf pro there. I also play cards all the time. And I have no idea how to play poker. So there's always some poker guy, yeah. So how to hold? This is what I
0: mean, though. (laughs) This is what I'm talking about about you, particularly having an authority in your scenes. Because I was watching your first Magnum PI episode, and I was like, "She sounds like she knows what she's talking about." That's, I mean, I'm I'm going to take these. Should I ever find myself on a course again, I'm going to take these 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 tips. These are these are really (laughs) valuable.
1: Uh, You just, yeah, you have to believe. Say yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Say yes. Yes, indeed, Amy Hill. Okay. Thank
1: you so much. Thank you. So lovely talking to you.
0: And that is an episode wrap on Amy Hill. Follow her on Instagram at Amy Hill Actor and watch her on Magnum PI. You might just get a few handy golfing tips. Forever.